Good morning. Hey, if you were at the women's potluck last night or the men's movie night, raise your hand. I just, all right, we got a good show last night. A lot of food left over. I think the women had the better food. And uh, Pastor Tim took advantage of his leadership position and he stopped by the women's place first. To, so uh, anyway, he didn't, he could bless them. Yes, he, uh, he was an honorary woman for a short time, so. But uh, we had a great time last night, so uh, next time we do this, uh, please feel free to come on out. And speaking of Pastor Tim, he gave you an awesome message last week speaking on uh, Tamar. I don't think I'd recall a message where so many different threads and points came together. It was a very interesting story. And he talked about uh, Rahab, or excuse me, he talked about Tamar, and uh, who was a woman who... Uh, dressed up and acted like a prostitute. So today I'm talking about a woman who was a prostitute. So you're going to get the real thing today. So um, if I could get my PowerPoint up. There we go. So I was thinking, well, we're talking about prostitutes and, you know, the title of the sermon series is uh, Influential Women of the Bible. I thought maybe we might want to think about renaming it. And I thought about maybe Hot Babes of the Holy Bible. Imagine if we had a sign out on Township Line, and you know how churches put those signs out, you know, where people, we'd either have a full auditorium or there'd be all kinds of wrecks out on the Township Line. And if that's a little bit too racy, we might come up with uh, Wild Women of the Word. And um, also with Rahab and as well as Tamar and as well as the rest of the women in this series, they took risk. So I thought maybe another title we could come up with is uh, God's Gutsy Girls. So you can send me an email today with either A, B, C, or D and tell me what you think the uh, series uh, title should be. So Rahab, she's mentioned several places in the Bible, and one of the places that she's mentioned is uh, the passage that Carl just read, and I just tacked on another verse there. She was uh, uh, in the lineage of Jesus, and uh, verse 6 mentions about King David being in her lineage. So King David would have been her great-great-grandson. So if she ever went to a cocktail party in heaven, she could name, you know, do some name-dropping about the people in her lineage. But also, if you go back, um, her husband, who she married uh, from the Israelites, was Salmon, and her, his father was Nashon, and his, grand, his father's father was Aminadab. Now, Aminadab had other children, one of which was Elisheba. And Elisheba was the wife of Aaron, and Aaron was, of course, the brother of Moses. So she's all plugged in all over the place. So she's a very well-connected woman. So that's one place in the Bible that, that she shows up. And another place that she shows up is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. And if you're familiar with your Bible, Hebrews 11 is what we call the Hall of Faith, where there's a list of people who have been recognized for the uh, things that they did. And uh, Rahab is one of the... Uh, only two women that are mentioned in this chapter. Sarah is the other one. Uh, but Rahab, um, other than uh, perhaps Noah, is the only non-Jew that's mentioned. She also came from a pagan background. And, of course, for now and forever, she's going to be known as a prostitute. So she made this all-star list of people by uh, her acts of faith. So Hebrews recognizes her for her faith. And that passage says, by faith... The walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient. After she had welcomed the spies in peace. So what exactly did Rahab do? 
Well, Joshua uh, had sent two spies into the promised land, and they actually went into the city of Jericho. So here's two guys sneaking in, and uh, they make contact with Rahab, and they lodge at her place. So uh, how they made contact, we don't know, but uh, she hooks up with them, and she knows who they are. They are from the Israelites, and so they lodge with her. Now, Rahab was probably, uh, the first century uh, historian Josephus says she was, probably, she was a harlot. She was running an inn. That's where these guys lodged. So it was probably the ancient version of a Motel 8. They were traveling through the area and hopped in there. And perhaps uh, Rahab was also running a brothel. So she was a little bit of an enterprising woman. Um, so they catch wind that the authorities of the city want to find these guys, and they knew that they had come to visit Rahab. So Rahab takes them up on the roof, and she hides them under a pile of flax. Uh, flax is a material that's used for making linen. And um, so what they would do is they would harvest the flax, soak it in water, and they would put it on their roofs. And as part of the curing process, they could then process it and make flax. So having flax up on a roof was not unusual, but anyway, she hid the, the spies. And uh, it also may be telling us that she was, a, again, a very enterprising woman. In addition to running an inn or a brothel or being a prostitute, she was uh, in, involved in the fabric industry. So anyway, the city officials show up, and they look like a bunch of Klingons. Uh, and uh, Rahab says, they went that away. Yeah, they came here. I talked to them. Uh, if you hurry up and leave the city and head east, uh, you should be able to overtake them. So the, the folks... Uh, the soldiers leave, and then Rahab goes back in her house. And her house, by the way, was built into and part of the, the city wall, and she lets the spies down out of the, the, uh, through her window. And in the process of leaving, she says, hey, I was kind to you guys. I protected you. When you guys come back to conquer the city, could you have mercy on me and my family? And they said, sure. Um, put this cord in your window. This way, we, uh, when we advance, we'll, we will not harm anybody who's in your home. So that was what uh, the story uh, of Rahab. So I will uh, get back to this in a little bit later, but I want to move on to another passage. So uh, Another place that Rahab is mentioned is in the book of James, which Carl just read. And it's a very important passage, so I'm going to take the time and, and read it again. So I just want you to think about what the, the words here. So Abraham... Rahab is mentioned here with Rahab. So she's in good company whenever she's mentioned in the Bible. Was not, Rahab, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. And in, you see, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, if you've been around here long enough, you've probably heard about salvation coming through faith. And so the verse at the top of the first sentence there says, you see, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That should kind of catch your ear as a little bit odd. So do we have a conflict with the scriptures? All right. 
if you looked at that, now being an engineer, I like equations. If you just kind of, if you've read through the New Testament and you get to the book of James, you, remember you've read through all of Paul, you get to James, and James makes it sound as if faith plus works is equal to salvation. It's kind of how it sounds like. And then that kind of conflicts with what Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So if you had to write an equation for this, it would be faith plus nothing results in salvation. So how do we reconcile this? Because this is an important point. If you, when studying the Bible, you have to be very, very careful about looking at the context. And also, you might have to dig a little bit deeper to find out uh, what some of the definitions are. And it turns out there's actually two definitions for justification or justify. Paul uses justify in his writings as meaning to declare a sinner righteous in the sight of God. Okay? James uses the word justify, and if you look in the dictionary, you'll find it's, it's it meaning to show or to prove to be right before God. So what um, we have here is um, when Abraham, uh, he was declared righteous by God in Genesis chapter 15. God had told him, all right, Abraham, you're going to have a son, you're going to have a, a lineage. And Abraham said, that's cool. And he believed in the Lord. And at that point in time, Genesis 15, 6 says, and he believed in the Lord and he reckoned, God reckoned it to Abraham as righteousness. So at Genesis chapter 15, Abraham was declared righteous in God's eyes because of his faith. Now, Rahab, we don't have a, a specific verse where she was declared uh, righteous, but when interacting with the spies in Joshua chapter 2, she, she states her faith very clearly. It says, for the, God, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So what we have is... Um, let me back up a second here. In James, when Abraham's mentioned about offering Isaac, that is in Genesis chapter 22. So Genesis chapter 22 obviously comes after James, or Genesis 15. So in Genesis 15, Abraham was declared righteous, but in Genesis 22, he proved his faith. He showed or demonstrated his faith by, by being obedient to God to offer up his son and likewise, um, uh, Rahab, excuse me, my brain's locking up this morning, was that she demonstrated her faith, she stated her faith, but she demonstrated her faith by uh, taking care of the spies. So the main point you want to get out of James chapter 2 that uh, was read this morning is that faith without works is dead. And a dead faith is a useless faith. And that's the first fill-in on your bulletin. A dead faith is a useless faith. And what that's saying is that um, when James was writing his epistle, he was writing it to people who knew the truth. And what he was doing was he was encouraging people to, to live out their faith. All right, he was assuming they knew what the, how you enter into a relationship with God, and he was encouraging them to live out their faith. As you read James, it's a very practically oriented book. Faith without works is dead. If you've come to a point where you follow Jesus, there should be a change in trajectory of your life. And you should look back over your life and say, hey, 
what kind of change took place? Am I thinking, my living, am I speaking differently than I did before I accepted Christ? Are you living, acting, behaving differently than the people in the world around us? If you're not, if there has not been a change in your life, you may want to take a long, hard look at yourself and ask yourself, do I truly believe in Jesus? Because this, there, there should be faith and works together. Faith comes first and then works follows. Faith without works is dead. A dead faith is a useless faith. I used to have a sticker on my desk that said, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? So think about that. If somebody were to look at your life, what would they say? Would they know by the way you live your life that you are a genuine follower of Jesus? Okay. Let's go back to Jericho. What was happening back then? The story of Jericho is that the Israelites had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and they just came into the Promised Land. And they circled the city of Jericho, and you know, they blew the trumpets and shouted, and the wall came down. But what people don't realize is right before they came into the Promised Land, these folks, the Israelites, got to see a miracle of God. They were they had crossed the Jordan River. God had stopped up or dammed up the Jordan River, and they were allowed to cross through the Jordan River on dry land. So these people got to see a miracle, just like their forefathers did coming out of Egypt when God parted the Red Sea. So the, the Israelites here marching around, they got to see a miracle firsthand. Now, God gives and God takes away. As soon as they entered into the promised land, well, while they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, God had provided for them. God fed them manna or bread from heaven for 40 years. As soon as they came into the promised land, that stopped. So things are changing for the Israelites, but they got to see the miracle of the manna, and they got to see it stop, but they also got to see God do a tremendous miracle parting the Jordan River for them. So they come in, and God speaks to Joshua, and Joshua tells the people, all right, this is what God wants you to do. He wants you to march around the city with the soldiers, the priests blowing the horns, the Ark of the Covenant, that's what's in the, underneath that blue tarp, and you're supposed to march around the city once, each day for six days. And then on the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times, and then you're going to shout, blow the trumpets, and the walls will fall down. All right, so that's what was supposed to happen. And as you can see here, they got the, uh, um, the red cord that was hanging from Rahab's window in, the, in that picture. So they, on the seventh day, they marched around and they shouted, and the walls of Jericho fell down. Boom. This is a picture of the site of the ancient city of Jericho today. It's about a nine or ten acre plot of ground. And you can see some of the, there's some pits in there. That's where they've done some extensive uh, uh, archaeological digs. And um, the city, they believe, looked something like this. It was a, a two-walled city. Uh, with bricks on the upper city, I don't know, the rich and the poor, the upper, the lower, uptown, downtown. Um, and there was a brick wall, oops, there was a brick wall on the top, 
And on the bottom, I want you to look, there is a, at the base of this wall is a stone retaining wall that was about 10 or 12 feet high, and on top of that were, were, were red bricks. So anyway, this is a very imp uh, formidable obstacle for the Israelites to try to conquer, but, but keep in mind this, this retaining wall and all these bricks. This is a side angle of uh, what the wall looked like. Again, you see the retaining wall with the bricks on top of it. It was about a 20-foot brick wall, six feet thick. The retaining wall, 12, 15 feet high. And then on the upper part of that little hill was another wall. So from the top of the top wall to the, where the, uh, you see the people marching around is about 45, 46 feet tall. And just by some comparison, if you live in a two-story house, probably the highest point of your house is probably like 25 or 30 feet. So imagine coming up a walk against a wall that's even higher than that. So what this picture is, it's, a, it's an excavation. And it's a reverse angle, I apologize. Um, this, don't get ahead of me. This is the uh, retaining wall, the stone wall. And here was the natural slope of the, of the territory. This gray stuff is just stuff that was built up on top of the ruins. There were dirt and debris that had accumulated. But anyway, when they dug down, here's the retaining wall. And here was a bunch of bricks. All right? So it looks like the way the city walls collapsed is they fell outward. And it created a ramp for the Israelites to go up into the city. And the reason that's important is sometimes we, we lack faith because maybe in the back of our minds we don't know if the Bible is true. So when they blew, the people heard the sound of the trumpet and shouted with a great shout. The wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead of them, and they took the city. Now if you're reading this, you would expect to say when the walls fell down flat that they would march into the city. Notice that it says it marched, they went up to the city, because they had to climb up that hill. But it's interesting, the, the word that they translated fell down flat, it, it's a Hebrew word, and I'm not fluent in Hebrew, but what it means is, is it fell under itself. The wall fell under itself, which is kind of a weird way of saying it. But when you go back to the previous picture, the wall, the bricks fell down below their initial position. So it does make sense. They fell beneath themselves. So anyway, the Bible and archaeology match up very well in that regard. Here's an ex excavator. He's, uh, he's got his back to that retaining wall. So the center or the upper city would be behind him. And what he's pointing out there is, uh, is they dug down uh, he's pointing out one of the bricks that they found in the, the, the excavation. Here's another picture of just, again, this is just the retaining wall. This is the, the ground level. What the Israelites would have seen is this 12 to 15 foot high stone wall. When they were excavating, they also found many, many large clay jars that were full of wheat and grain. And it's very interesting. Um, archaeologists say that the, the city had a very good water supply. They had a lot of food. They could have held out for years during this siege. When they looked at these jars, they found out that there was just a very little amount of wheat taken. The, the jars were nearly full, or almost full. 
which means that the siege of the city was very short, and that corresponds nicely with what the Bible says. It was a seven-day siege around the city. Um, and perhaps the most fascinating thing about this is that, remember I told you that they, God had stopped the manna? Well, the city walls came down, they go in, they have access to the whole city now. They, they killed everyone in the city as God had commanded them to do. But God also commanded them to do something else. He said, do not take anything out of the city. There was an exception. They were to take gold, silver, bronze, and iron. They were to take that out and put it in God's treasury. But the Everything else they were supposed to leave in a city. Now remember, they stopped, God, God turned off the manna, and it would have made perfectly good human sense. Well, here's free food. Here's all this food we could, we could use. But no, they left it there. They were told to do that, and they were obedient to God's word. So here we are, over 3,500 years later, as these uh, jars full of grain testified to the obedience of the Israelites when they conquered the city. All right, today I'm supposed to talk about Rahab. Let's go back and talk a little bit about Rahab. So the city walls fell down. What happened to Rahab? Part of the excavation um, when they were digging around the, the ruins of Jericho is that they found a small section on the northern part of the city um, where, where the wall didn't collapse. After all these years, they, they found probably what was Rahab's house. So God kept his word, and they found it exactly as the Bible describes it. The, the homes were built into and were a part of the city wall. So if any of you have any doubt about the veracity of the Bible, this little research project that I did here proves that. Because sometimes we don't want to step forward because we really don't know if it's true, but all the archaeological evidence matches what the biblical account had recorded for us for all these years. So I hope you take away at least the fact that we can rely on God's word. Now, what I want to do is I want to kind of go back a little bit and talk about um, the wall. You know, Rahab, she took action to protect the spies and to gather her family together. When you think about it, she could have trusted in the walls. I mean, as a soldier, I would not have wanted to go up against this wall. And she probably felt, from a human standpoint, very, very safe within the wall. Yeah, she believed in God. Yeah, she, she believed that the God of Israel was the true God. But she could have sat and done nothing. But instead, she took action. She risked being executed as a traitor, you know, by protecting the spies. But she did not trust in the wall. She, she, she did what she was told. She gathered her family together. And she put the cord in the window. Now, the biblical text says that when the spies left, they put, she put the cord in the window. She did not know when they were coming back. Okay? She could have hit it. She could have, you know, whatever. I'm sure the people saw it. Her neighbors saw it. They probably came by and they looked and they said, what's that, you know, Decoration is that something that's trending on Google or Facebook or whatever that you know you're putting it in there? We don't know what happened, but she was very bold. She was not at all timid. She put that out there. She was identifying herself, as Tim said last week. The cord was a form of identification, and she was identifying herself as God's children. And maybe there's a little parallel there for us: is that one day Jesus is coming back, 
And maybe we should not be so timid and shy about acknowledging that we are his followers. The Israelites, on the other hand, again, they were marching around the city. And another interesting thing was that, that um, Joshua told them, when you march around the city, don't say a word, except for the last day when they were to shout. So here they are marching around the city in silence. And if you've ever taken a walk by yourself, typically, because you don't, people don't talk to themselves, so if you're walking in silence, you're doing a lot of thinking. And we can only imagine what they were thinking about. Maybe they were thinking about the last 40 years where they were seemingly aimlessly wandering about in the desert. Maybe they were thinking about the miracle they saw when God parted the, allowed them to cross the Jordan River. Maybe they were excited that they were now finally coming into the promised land that God had promised to their forefathers. Maybe they were thinking about where their next meal was coming from, being that God had, is no longer, was no longer providing the manna. Maybe they thought this was a crazy plan, marching around the city and shouting for it to fall down. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like if somebody says, all right, Dave, if you stand on your left foot, cover your right eye, and pick your nose, the Eagles are going to win today. I mean, I know some of you are so desperate for the Eagles to win, you'd probably go up about three knuckles to make sure it happened. But there was, there's no connection between what I do and what the Eagles do down at the link today. In the same way, walking around the city, what does walking around the city and shouting, what, what's that going to do? However, the Israelites demonstrated great faith. They simply obeyed God's word, what God told them to do. And they marched around the city on the seventh day and they shouted, and this formidable fortress collapsed. And they were able to conquer the city. There's two sides to every wall. Rahab was on the inside trying to escape, and the Israelites were on the outside trying to get in. And it took faith from both parties to accomplish what they were trying to do. It's interesting, you know, the actions that Rahab took largely were self-motivated. She didn't wait for some sign or, or, you know, should I take care of these spies? I mean, it could have been real easy for her to you know, have a Bible study and pray about it and, and, you know, no, she had to make a decision on the spot. She was acting on her face. She knew what she needed to do and she did it. Whereas the Israelites, on the other hand, they just, God told them, he was speaking through Joshua, he told them exactly what to do and they did it. So God can lead us in different ways and the point for us is that we need to be in a position where we can submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit at any time to be obedient and to fall into God's will. So the next point is that I want to make, and I think I have your, the bulletin out of uh, order here, but uh, um, living faith. What is living faith? What is an uh, act of faith? Rahab demonstrated faith by taking risk. And that should be like the, uh, it's, I'll, I'll get back, I've skipped over a couple lines in, in the outline. But Rahab demonstrated faith by taking risks. She took practical actions to address real problems. She protected the spies, she protected her family, she took a risk. And the Israelites, they simply demonstrated faith by being obedient to God's word. It's just that simple. Sometimes it's a blind leap of faith. Do what God tells you to do and that's what they did. The walls, 
All right, I think I mentioned it. I mean, Rahab, she could have done nothing and trusted in the walls to protect her. However, walls, trusting in walls can be a trap. Trusting in walls can be a trap. Had she not done anything, had she not protected the spies, had she not did what she did, she would have perished along with the rest of the city had she trusted in the walls that she could see. And the Israelites, they could have simply bypassed the city of Jericho. I mean, why, why pick a fight that you don't have to? All those Jerokians or Jerichonians or the people of Jericho were all bottled up in that city. Just let them there. But that wasn't God's will. Avoiding walls can be disobedience. Avoiding walls can be disobedience. So what I want you to, hopefully you got those uh, blanks filled in for you. Uh, hopefully, uh, well, now what I want to do is just ask you guys a question. What walls are in your life? What's keeping you from demonstrating faith in God or what obstacles are you facing? Could it be prestige? You like your job title or position? You like your advanced degrees? Is that what you're trusting in? Your parents or your family, maybe you're living a life that your parents have said, this is what you should do to be successful. All right, maybe that's not bad advice, but maybe it's not God's advice. Maybe your wall is protection. You put a great deal of emphasis on stability, security. Maybe for us today, it's our money, our portfolio. We all know from recent history that uh, the stock market collapses, two big ones in the last 18 years, 50% declines. Your money could evaporate. Is that a wall in your life? Possessions, you like your nice car, your, nice, your big home, your second home, winter home, whatever. Are you trusting in that? Or are you more concerned about that? Maybe a wall is the plans that you have in your life. You have a, pro, a career progression all in mind, how you're going to climb the ladder. Uh, you've got plans about education and what you're going to do, how you're going to do it. Uh, preparing for retirement. You've got all these plans. You don't want God to mess with them. Those are yours. Really? None of us are guaranteed another minute. As you can tell, I'm going with the letter P here. Um, pleasures. Maybe you're just lazy. Maybe you just want to rest. Maybe you don't want to get involved. Maybe you just want to plan vacations and fun times and do stuff, but you don't want to get involved in God's work. You don't want to demonstrate faith in any of these areas of your life. And I'm not saying that you know, money and homes and cars or and education are bad things or not. The question is, what place do those things have in your life? Are they preventing you from living the way God wants you to do? Or are they traps keeping you in, confined to some place where you should not be? How you spend your money and your time reveals a lot about your priorities. It speaks volumes. Just take a look at your checkbook and your calendar and ask yourself, if somebody picked this up and saw this, what would they say about my life? Is there evidence? In closing here, I just want to say that the, the story of Rahab 
the long and the short of it is, it's how she actively demonstrated her faith when it had been extremely easy for her to do nothing. Again, faith without works is dead. And my question to you in closing is, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Let's pray. Dearly Father, 